So in Matthew chapter 4, it's kind of still in the beginning section of Matthew's gospel. So, so far Jesus has been baptized, he's gone through the wilderness and out the other side, and he just starts to call his disciples. The passage that we're reading is kind of the interpretive lens for the rest of the gospel of Matthew and specifically the Sermon on the Mount. And then, in order to understand anything, you actually have to know the ending. So let me just put a a simple sentence out there. Bob hit, if you don't know what Bob hit, you don't know the meaning of the sentence. Bob hit Joe, oh, with a ball. Oh, more context, more meaning, more understanding is provided. So in order to understand what Jesus means and what Matthew's trying to teach us through this passage, I actually want us to look at the last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And then we're going to dive into Matthew 4 specifically. Matthew 28, and I will just read verse 16 to the end of the passage. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to a mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay, so if we, um, in my upbringing, this was a big passage just about discipleship, that Jesus is calling us to evangelize, Jesus is calling us to do Bible studies, Jesus is calling us to make people think correctly. But if we don't read Matthew 4 with that, we're going to miss the entire meaning of what Jesus is calling people to do when he says, make disciples. So let's look through the passage. I'm going to read through Matthew 4, and we'll get some insight here. You can just stay with your little sheet that I've provided. I'm going to go with the third paragraph on the sheet. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news, or the gospel, of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, suffering, with severe pain and demon-possessed, those having seizures and and the paralyzed. And he healed them, large crowds from Galilee and Decropolis and Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So when Jesus started his ministry, and he's informing his recently called disciples to follow him, they immediately do what? They leave everything to follow him. But what don't they do that we would think they would do? If you... 
No, any questions? Jesus doesn't say, okay, now let, let me um, get you equipped to know the entire Bible before you go out and do things. Um, what else isn't he doing? No, they're just following him and seeing what Jesus is doing. And whatever Jesus does informs what it means to disciple and go out to all the nations and do what Jesus said at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. But a lot of times, it's easy to separate what's called orthodoxy, which is correct thinking, from orthopraxy, which is correct practice, just fancy words. So a lot of times, I think, especially us who are from evangelical, Bible-believing backgrounds, people that take the Bible seriously, we really, really focus on right thinking. But we neglect right practice. We've confused right practice with not swearing, not going to see those movies, not drinking, not doing things. Focus on the do-nots rather than the do's. Rather than the do's, which is loving compassionately and following after Jesus. And now let's backtrack since I've kind of showed the end and my whole mantra was we have to know the ending before we can read backwards. So let's go to where our friends, let's just look at our friends uh, Peter and Andrew. Now Peter and Andrew, it says they were fishing and Jesus just strolls up and says follow him. And um, you, the NIV will say, at once, um, in the original language, it's like capturing this like immediately, like now, instantaneous, just like dropping their nets and going. That's what it's capturing. What they are giving up is their livelihood. And but what was this the first time that they met Jesus? Did Jesus just stroll up in some stranger, or did they have some context around him? In the Gospel of John, we have Andrew coming to Peter and saying. Hey, we, we, the Messiah is here. So it's very likely that they knew who Jesus was, especially when we take into context that Galilee as a region was kind of like a population of under 200 people. So it's like a small town. Everyone knows who you are. They're like, this Jesus guy, he's doing things. And Jesus has probably been calling people to follow him. And it's likely that this is actually the second time they've been called. So what we see here is the persistence of Jesus in calling people. And what's interesting is Jesus is doing something that no rabbi did back then. Rabbi just means teacher. It's just a term for Jewish teacher. So when a rabbi would, when people would start following a rabbi, they would go to the rabbi. And they would prove to the rabbi how Bible nerd they are. They would have a, a Jewish boy from the ages of, um, till like five or six or eight would have the Torah memorized. And if they were good enough to memorize the Torah, then they would go on to memorize the prophets. And that would take them between like their teenage years. So around like 16 to like 18, they would be seeking a rabbi to follow. And if you could prove to the rabbi that you were good enough, and if the rabbi, the rabbi would only accept you as a student or a disciple, or a better term would actually be apprentice. Because when someone goes to college, they, they learn a, 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 a lot of information around a certain topic. But when someone becomes an apprentice, they're being trained as they go. And an apprentice isn't expected to 
know everything. Just as Jesus, when he calls us, doesn't expect us to know everything. But when someone would come to the rabbi, the rabbi would only accept them if he thought they could become like him. So the rabbi would have to see the potential in them. And only if he thought they could have the potential to be like him would he accept them. So what we see Jesus doing, as Jesus always does, he does the opposite of what we think he should do. So Jesus comes to Peter and Andrew and says, follow me. He doesn't have them go through the steps, and he actually reverses the process and goes to them rather than them coming to him. So Jesus must have thought that they could become like him. So what does it mean? I've been using this word over and over again, calling. Calling. Um, a lot of times, um, for instance, I was catching, um, catching up with a childhood friend a couple weeks ago I ran, in, ran into lately, and he was just talking about, like, I just need to find my calling. And I'm, I'm listening to him talk. He's kind of, like, graduated from college and doesn't know what he wants to do. And he's just like, like you, Taylor, you found your calling. You're, you're doing chaplaincy. Like, you, you know what you're supposed to do. And I was just kind of like, the way you're talking about calling isn't the way Scripture talks about calling. Calling in the Bible is a calling to, to become so, like something, not to do something. Um, but we confuse calling in what we do. So like if I'm a carpenter, that means I'm called to be a carpenter. No, that's just what you happen to do. Our true calling is in following Jesus. And how whatever we find ourselves in life, we're called to follow Jesus as we do such and such. And a short way to summarize following Jesus would be loving God and loving people. So it doesn't matter what your job is or what your current state in life is, everyone has the calling to love and also to be loved. The calling of Jesus isn't about how effective we can do something. Many of the patients that I interact with, they can't do anything. They have dementia, they have Alzheimer's, and maybe they aren't even cognitive to even like reciprocate what I'm talking to them about or how I'm sharing my presence with them. But yet, they are fulfilling their vocation and being loved in that moment. And that's what Jesus takes his disciples to go do. And being Jesus, he is able to, when Jesus touches the sick, he doesn't become sick. He doesn't have to do the elbow thing. He makes the sick well. It's interesting. There is no instance in Scripture where Jesus is sick. That's uh, led some people to think that Jesus could not become sick, which is interesting. Because if Jesus could become sick, then how could he heal the sick? It's just an interesting thought. Um, not, not really too seriously. But then, what? so I've talked about calling. That calling isn't this idea of, knowing what I'm specifically supposed to do. Calling is about obedience and observance to following Jesus, i.e. loving God and people, whatever context you're in. It has nothing to do with what you do. It's who you are. So in calling, Jesus is calling us to become. So I'm going to get to sacrifice with this next section, okay? Because we see the sacrifice intenses. 
Because it doesn't, if you look at Peter, or Peter and Andrew, it says that they left their vocation of being fishermen. But what did uh, James and John, what did they leave? Huh? Their father. So at this time, um, they were apprenticing under their father. And they saw Jesus as a greater master. That what Jesus was calling them to do, who, specifically what Jesus was calling them to be, was different than what they would be if they would just remained fishermen. And this is the thing in life. It doesn't, this is, uh, can be even separated from what it means to follow Jesus. We have to choose our sacrifice. Everyone has to sacrifice something, even if you do nothing. Um, this is like uh, Peter Pan, for instance. Peter Pan, what is special about Peter Pan? He never grows up. Well, the Robin Williams he does, but <laughs> but the other thing that Peter Pan just is a story. He never grows up. So he's trying to avoid sacrificing what? His childhood, youth. And who is Peter Pan's enemy? Who's his nemesis? Captain Hook. And Captain Hook's not really a nice guy. What is Captain Hook doesn't have a hand symbolizing what? Mortality. And who is he being chased by? The crocodile, which is interesting. It's an it's a, uh, image of death. Death is coming for Captain Hook. Uh, in most ancient mythologies, a snake, a lizard, or an alligator is symbolized as death. Which is, it's just interesting. Um, so death is coming for Captain Hook. And Peter Pan refuses to grow up. But that's the thing about children, is that they're just full of potential. They can become whatever they want to become. But Peter Pan decides to rule the nobodies, the, the, the children of lost causes, basically, and decides not to grow up and, in fact, sacrifices potential for the sake of childhood instead of growing up and becoming something. So, like I said earlier, we have to choose our sacrifice. Every one of us has to choose our sacrifice, which means that there is a danger in refusing the call of Jesus. There's a danger in refusing the call of Jesus. And Jesus constantly, through the gospel of Matthew, constantly has to draw his disciples back into that calling. So we are, no matter whether it's our first time deciding to follow Jesus or continuing to follow Jesus, we are always presented with sacrificing who we are now for what we can become and listening to the voice of Jesus as he reminds us to not refuse the call. Because when we refuse the call, we stay stagnant, and in fact, worse, we become something that we are never intended. We actually digress in our apprenticeship to Jesus. Um, there's this um, theory I use with patients called the hero's journey. It was actually a... Um, um, a 
a theory made by Joseph Campbell, who actually inspired George Lucas to make Star Wars. Um, and within almost every single main epic story, there is a character who's in the mundane of life, just doing his normal thing. And then he's presented with the call. And usually right when the character is presented with the call, they have what's called the refusal of the call. And it's not until they are presented with some sage or, or mentor that they accept the call and enter the first threshold. I'm going to use Star Wars as an example, or you can even think of Lord of the Rings, but uh, Star Wars. So Luke Skywalker, he's just a farmer. He's trying to just do his own thing, wants to leave, but doesn't want to disrupt his family at all. And then these two droids ruin his life. He gets attacked, rescued by Obi-Wan, and Obi-Wan says, oh, you need to follow me. He's like, no, I, I can't do that. No, 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 I need to stay home. And the Empire ends up killing his family, presented with the consequences of refusing the call in the mythology of Star Wars. And he ends up accepting the call later, only with the guidance of Obi-Wan. Okay, let's just import this, this model on our story today. It's just fascinating how um, truth will imprint itself even on story. So the truth of today's story, you can find in so many different other stories because they're all pointing to the main story of God. But, so we have our characters, Peter, Andrew, John, and James, and they each are presented with Jesus. And it's likely not their first time of interacting with Jesus. If we read the other Gospels, they've at least known of him or have even already received the call. And Jesus finds them doing what they were previously doing. They accept the call, and they, Jesus guides them as the mentor through the first threshold, which is going into the areas and alleviating suffering from others, which is directly tied to our call of what it means to make disciples. If we are not seeking to alleviate the suffering of others by both alleviating physical and spiritual suffering, then we are not following Jesus. We're following ourselves or someone else. And in fact, then, we are not answering the call, and we are not choosing to sacrifice who we are to what we can become. Does that all make sense? Any questions? Let me just check if I'm forgetting anything. I have a passage I wanted to read before going into our, our segment on prayer um, in a book I read for school, actually. And the book is called Called. And it has a section just on this passage in general. So just listen. The kingdom of heaven has come near, Jesus said in Matthew 4:17. This is because he himself had come near. The reign of God's love, mercy, and justice came near in Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. Everything is the same and everything is different. The full vocation of the church is to follow Jesus in declaring the enchantment of the kingdom. This involves all we are and all we have. It's a call into nothing less than God's work of recreation in which he wants to make all things new. 
as far-reaching as this vocation is, it is played out in the small and ordinary things of life, as well as the large and exceptional. Our gifts and context help shape our contributions. But even before we know what those are, even before God gives us clarity to our focus or concentration in his kingdom of life, even before we have a nameable job or mission, we are called to imitate Jesus Christ. As one of the church fathers said, Basil of Pascal said, do little things as if they are great things because of the majesty of Jesus who does them in us and who lives our life and do the greatest things as though they were little and easy because of his omnipotence. Following Jesus this day in the life we are living right now, this is the vocation we must grasp and exercise. So do the great things as if they are little and the little things as if they are great because no matter what we are doing, it is Christ who lives, not I. And we have to remember that constantly. The, the discipleship of Jesus is this dedication to mindfulness. Because the moment we forget to be mindful of our calling, of what we're sacrificing, we will inevitably end up astray. And one of the most ancient practices of maintaining mindfulness in the Christian life is prayer. And a couple weeks ago, um, when I taught with on John the Baptist, I kind of ended with a segment on prayer as well. But as I was analyzing how I was teaching it, I was, I was realizing I was kind of prescribing prayer. I was demonstrating how to pray, but not necessarily giving a method of how to pray. Um, so I wanted to provide this time a simple method of how to pray that actually goes back to um, church history. It goes back to the 200 AD, so 200 years after Jesus. Um, it's just an, the Lectio Divina. It means just sacred reading. And uh, it was developed by a guy named Origen who grew up in Alexandria. And uh, he um, articulated that there are three uses of Scripture for the Christian. There's the literal or uh, straightforward meaning, um, what the text is really getting at. There's the moral background to it, so like the application to the text. And then there's this mystical, something that like we know it's there within the text. And it's sometimes like when we read a passage and you're like, huh. And then you go throughout your day and then you're like, that? and then you like somehow you, you either hear the verse or you see something happen in your life, and you're like, wow, like what I just read today applies directly to this. Like that's what I mean by the mystical. It's something that we can't comprehend, can't predict, but it's the way that the scripture, because Jesus, of Jesus living in us, reads us actually and speaks to us just as we read the scripture. So I wanted to guide us through Lectio Divina as a, maybe a model for us to practice today and for you to maybe integrate into your own life if you find it works. Um, I just want to read through the steps and kind of explain it and then maybe model um, this, the steps before we go and do this together. Um, and it has to be done together because Christ died not just for me, but for all of us. Christ lives not just in me, but in all of us. He called not just me, 
but all of us. We all have the living God within us. That the people next to you will journey into eternity with you. That we are bonded together in our calling and our sacrifice as we just follow Jesus. And that you are loved by God. I just want to speak that truth over you as we go into this intimate time together. It is not something to rush through. It is something that Christians have found to be the most intimate way of connecting with one another and connecting with God is through prayer and meditation together. So the first step is called Lectio, just means reading. Slow, attentive reading. And then when you, when you read through the passage, if there's a word that like jumps out to you, repeat the word or the phrase that jumps out to you. So in our passage today, it could be, at once they left their nets. Maybe that's what jumps out to you. Or maybe it's, and they were proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease. They were healing, and then you just kind of repeat that in your head internally. And then you meditate. You reflect on that phrase and allow it to sink in differently. Maybe you're in your own life are interacting with sickness. Maybe you know someone else who's interacting with sickness. Maybe you know how much people are suffering, and that's what you end up meditating on and you're praying about. So then you think about it, you meditate on it, before you voice it to God. God, I see this suffering And I know you're calling me to follow you. And following you means that I intervene in the suffering of others. But Jesus, I just don't know how to do that. Help me do that. That would be an example of speaking to God what you've been meditating on. And then you just rest in silence. Listen. And then if this can sometimes last long or it can be short, depending on what it is. So then the last step would just be repeat. Stick to the prayer, and when there is no fruit, because a lot of times when we pray, when I pray, maybe I don't feel anything. Maybe nothing sparks within me. But again, we need to follow Jesus, not necessarily follow our feelings. And I love feelings, and our feelings speak to us magnificent things. But we do not trust in them entirely. So maybe there is no fruit that we see from our first prayer. But remember, no tree grows from just one watering. And again, we're apprentices to Jesus, which means that he will walk beside us every step of the way. So is there a phrase, um, just to kind of demonstrate and model for you all before breaking up separately, is there a phrase that has jumped out to anyone? In, in Matthew 4. And just go with uh, Shout it out. Or raise your hand. Okay. So, um, how I would start with the phrase, come follow me, is I would uh, just take a deep breath. And I would look at the passage, and I would read it top to bottom, so just on our side. I'm just going to read, read slowly, read intently, 
and maybe I'll emphasize come follow me in a specific way. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went out throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease, sickness among the people, and news about him everywhere spread all over Syria, and the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases and those suffering severe pain and the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed. And he called them, large crowds from Galilee and Decropolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So I'm just going to speak what would be going internally in my mind about following him. Um, it could go something like this, like, Jesus, I, I've been following you for, a, for quite a while now. And sometimes I, I just feel like I've gone astray. And then other times I feel like all I am is walking uphill. Are there not any easy parts to following you? Is there any fruit that will bear in my life? And then I would then speak to God about that. So that what I just said was internally, and now I'm going to do externally. Well, Jesus, I know that you listen, and you have called me, and I have not called you. Meaning that it is your words, not mine, that implore me, that energize me in following you. May I not follow myself, but follow you in such a way that meets the brokenhearted, that tends to the wounds of others. May I be obedient in all that I do and follow you to the ends of the earth, for that is where you'll be as well. And then I would just remain silent and rest in that. And then if I wanted to keep going, I could but that's a way to interact with scripture without it necessarily being intellectual or necessarily being academic. But you're letting the scripture, through your first reading, speak to you. And you're, you're coming to God in a way that is humble, in a way that is acknowledging that it's not about figuring it out, but it's about calling out to our Father. So I would just invite you to try, talk about um, your thoughts on this before you do it. Um, some of you may be in, ah, this is not me. <laughs> and that's okay. But just be honest about it. It's, not, it's nothing um, too serious. But um, meet each other where you're at and discuss and then um, try to do it together. Whether that means you have someone else model it or lead it or you agree on a word and phrase, and then you, you speak out loud about that phrase together. So we are not professionals in anything that we do.
Thank you.